Welcome to Accounting High. One of the things that has been true for me personally throughout the years is having enough quiet time to think. With today's technology, you have to really disconnect to get that same time. I've encouraged people to take down time on the weekends. Too many accounting professionals are workaholics. They work way too many hours and they don't let their mind rewind. May I have your attention, please? Welcome to Accounting High. Whether you loved high school or you hated it, here's your chance to be a part of an unforgettable experience redone. So sit back, relax, and open your mind because class is in session. I repeat, may I have your attention please? This is another public service announcement brought to you in part by Accounting High. The views and events expressed here are of the next generation of accounting and tech professionals leading this space. The events and suggestions are not to be taken lightly. Children should not partake in the listening of this podcast. Anything else? Yeah. So without further ado, introducing the star of our show, Scotty and Randy Johnston. We're going to have a problem here. Randy, thank you for joining me today. Class is in session. I'm so pleased. Now, I said your name, Randy Johnston. I always want to say Johnson because that's just natural. Can well, you pronounce you know, it for been, our listeners? Well, it's Johnston, but I've been confused with the big unit many times in many different cities. Yep. So uh, he's a big guy, nice guy. He's got I a lot longer you. hair, though. His hair resembles mine, not yours. Yeah, it's a little longer, but again, had the pleasure of bumping into him in lots of different markets. So in any case, but Johnston is uh, the right way to say it. Well, Randy, you're coming at me from where, where are you right now? Kansas? Yep. I, I was born in Hutchinson, Kansas and still live here. In fact, uh, mom is about to uh, celebrate her hundredth birthday. And uh, just before we got on to, to uh, talk today, that was my last conversation was with mom. See how she's doing today. That's incredible. 100. She hit the, oh, he, she hit the century mark or she's about to. About to. Yeah. God we're bless. hoping not to pretty wider. God bless mom. So we're here to talk technology today. We're in the tech lab. We're at the computer sciences area of accounting high. You've been involved in tech pretty much your whole working career. Is that is that right? That is accurate. Yeah. I really started with accounting firms in the late 70s, writing work in process software, practice management, if you would, where I would help transition firms out of mini computers into personal computers and local area networks, and then right on up through client server, cloud, SaaS, et cetera. So I've stayed with it pretty much the whole way, Scotty. So Tell me then, how did you get involved with accountants? Or at least, like, let's start the journey with tech, too. Like, how did you get involved with both of these? Where did, where did that crosshairs meet? Yeah, that's a fair question. And it came very directly from my interest in computing from, I will say, middle school of all ungodly things. Before I high thought school. I wanted to do uh, crime computing, NCIC type of work, and uh, realized I'd have to move to D.C. to do it. And I'm thinking... I'm from Kansas. I'm not moving to D.C. So I wound up getting programming skills, and I wrote different platforms, including a medical clinical system 
including first paperless claims used here in the United States. And I wrote a hotel and lodging program called Logistics, which is still used today. And that really led me over into accounting software. And all of a sudden it's like, well, who's behind a lot of the accounting software? And by the way, who's using this stuff? And poof, there's the accountants. So as it turns out, you know, I had friends and associates wound up putting the first portable computer shipped into Kansas into a government auditor's hands. And I configured it for him and showed him how to use it. It just kind of kept going from there. The first portable computer, you mean like a laptop or what, 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 what was it like? No, that was the old compact sewing machine. You know, they had the Osbournes that competed against them, but it was one, it was like pretty a No, it's bigger than a briefcase. <laughs> so what is portable about it? <laughs> well, you could carry it. <laughs> okay. All right. So it's got a you know, it's like, you may not even remember how big these machines were early on. But literally, to try to give you a rough idea on the dimensions, it was a marvelous unit. It was about two and a half feet long and about eight inches thick and about 20 inches high. And it weighed only 28 pounds. It was super portable. So are, did you have any kind of foresight or like thought that we could potentially do everything with a brick in our hands, like not even a brick, like the, what our phones can do today compared to what it was then. Like, is any of this surprise to you or did you see this coming? Not really much of a surprise there, Scotty. Part of the reason for that is I've always followed the tech. I knew the tech was shrinking. And part of the reason I did what I did is we went from many computers to personal computers. I said, oh, this stuff's going to keep getting smaller and smaller until you can carry it around. And I would expect a lot of it would be, you know, wrist and glasses enabled like we had with Google Glass, you know, well, I guess at this point, 12 years ago. And, you know, I had the privilege of helping with a lot of the, well, they were called PDAs. It's probably not a very politically correct term today, <laughs> you know, the personal digital assistants, the trios and things like that. And those early combination cell phones. And I also had the privilege of assisting with the design of things like the iPhone and so forth. So we could see a lot of this coming and we often have it in our hands two, three years before it hit the marketplace, probably because of the technical background. I'm used to thinking, okay, how would I code it? How would I set this up and whatnot? But my full expectation is that we would have voice activated devices that we would be able to talk to, to do most of the things that we would want. And they could largely talk back to us. And we're getting pretty close today with, you know, Apple Siri and, you know, the Alexa units. And if you think about how much better voice recognition is now than it was in 2011, when it first came out, it's going to get a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. This is just a taste of what we're going to, the abilities we'll have. And I, I venture to say people are going to be talking to their phone more than they'll be talking to somebody else on the other line. They'll be talking to the phone itself. Like, I don't see it that much. It does happen. But most of the time when I see somebody talking on their phone, maybe it's talk to text, but they're not using it as that assistant. But we would, I would think that's down the line where it's going to be more commonly adopted. It's not that far down the line, but yes, it's coming real soon to us. And part of that, I think, is because of the AI enablement, the way that voice recognition is working, and the ability to retrieve large amounts of important and pertinent data for us. 
And if you start taking the role as an accountant of being more of a proactive advisor, we can't know it all, but we should know how to look it up and vet the information that we see for accuracy. And then use that as guidance for our clients to suggest the best possible solutions that they can have for their needs. And, you know, that advisory centric view is such a big deal to me because you've got to keep the client needs first. It revolutionizes education. The first thing I think of when you say we're going to learn how to look it up and know where to look things up, that changes our whole education model too. just like in general, not just for accountants, but for everybody that, you know, a lot of kids growing up and even for me growing up, once Google was around, we always knew we could find it on Google. We could find it somewhere else on the internet and we didn't have to memorize stuff anymore. We didn't have to have loads of, you know, encyclopedias to look things up, to take it to that extreme. But even so for the ability to interface and interact with a machine that has all the answers, that's the education. Now that's people, how, how they can wield that. Did you see that coming too? Yeah. And see, I, I, I think I did see that coming coming, but let's put it in the context of where we're at because for AI today, prompt engineering is, you know, a big deal trying to teach the systems how to respond properly. But, you know, if you go back to the early search engines and the ones that predated Google, yeah, of course, there were many, many of them. Those early search engines were awful crude and we had to use Boolean operators and we had to do all sorts of things to make them, you know, do better search for us. But most people today with Google search don't even know how to use the advanced features. They just kind of throw the words in there and you know, the results are good enough. They find what they're after. But yes, I do see these models continuing to improve. And if you go back now at this point, 13 years ago, when the neural networks were first breaking through, it was clear that what was being done with neural networks and machine learning was going to change the way we interacted. And, you know, honestly, today, rather than me going to a search engine like Google or any of their competitors, DuckDuckGo and whatnot, I usually will go to an AI-powered search engine first, something like Bing, which I never thought I'd recommend, or you, uh, those types of products, because the AI answers are better than what I'm typically getting with the big boys like Google today. Really? So going directly to, let's say, GPT or, like you said, BARD, or is that is that the Bing one? I'm not even sure. Yeah, well, you know, Bing has the open AI model in it, but it's got all of the data past September 2021. So oh. you can get it right today instead of having these limitations like you've got in chat GPT. And of course, when we look at how BARD has improved their engine over the last, I'll say, 60 days before our speaking today, or with uh, Meta releasing their engines and so forth, these AI engines are going to go real far, real fast. But let me take you even one more step in the future because I believe the AI models are near the uh, limitations of what they can do on our platforms today, but there are quantum computers that operate on qubits rather than digital bits that will change the game of the way this stuff works. And quantum is working pretty well today. It's not full industrial scale. But it's coming real fast. Google's running 72 qubit engines today. And I've said for at least six years at this point that when we get to a 500 qubit quantum computer, all these digital computers that we're using won't make any difference. So 
one thing, and I'm going to scope us back a little bit. One thing I find really interesting is you've never left Kansas, but when I think of tech and especially like 70s, it's like Palo Alto, California. I mean, even for me, I'm in North Carolina, but it's the Research Triangle Park, RDU. So there's tech, like there are tech hubs. Is there a tech hub in Kansas that I don't know about? There is absolutely no tech hub out here, but you know, there's also not a lot to do at night. So what do you do? Okay. Okay. So you think about it like that. Now, the reason it's- So really you were tinkering with things in your garage, I presume? Oh, yeah. Or tinkering every place that I could because, you know, it's not all that interesting to, to, to go out where there's not a lot to do. But I had the good fortune early in my career to be invited into the Bay Area on a regular basis. So I was flying into the Bay Area about every six weeks. And yeah, I worked with the IBMers in Research Triangle Park. And I worked with the IBMers up in Armonk and a lot of these big company research labs, which were pretty stunning, along with Microsoft, along with Apple. And, you know, you keep naming them. And again, because I was, I usually tell people, Scotty, I'm kind of a simple guy. I'm from Kansas. I try to KS, keep it simple. But I'll walk into a meeting and say, did you guys think about doing it like this? And they'll all kind of look at each other and be confused. And it's like, well, you know, that seems pretty straightforward to me, but you've got to remember because of my programming background, I've got the skills to do real low level code. And because of that, I think like a systems designer, a database designer, but I, I also tend to think about things in terms of people's workflow. And, you know, if you go back to the fundamental, most of us could care less about tech. We only care about getting our job done easier, faster, better. And tech is a lever to do that. It's stunning. Tech is a lever. Tech's an enabler. So is the K2 a backwards S or an S flipped then? <laughs> I have never been asked that question, but the inside baseball on the K2 name is quite simple. My partners in that organization that I were out skiing and we're standing on the top of a mountain in Utah, we're looking down at our skis and saying, you know, we have got to come up with a name for this new company. What do we call it? And I said, I don't know. Let's, let's call it something simple like K2 until we come up with a better idea. And uh, But where did K2 out. come from? Well, if you think about it, there's a skateboard and ski company named K2. Guess oh. what type we were standing on? K2, K2, K2. So we're on K2 skis and we said, well, we'll just call it K2. Now, of course, K2, really, we agreed, uh, and not only in theory, but in practice, was, is the second highest mountain in the world, but it's the most difficult to climb, often referred to as the Killer Mountain. Is that Kilimanjaro? Uh, no, it's or actually in, it's in India, okay. uh, on that border. It's near Mount Everest. But it turns out that K2 has had more people killed climbing it than Everest has. And this killer mountain had a picture of it taken by a guy out of the UK. His name was Adrian Burgess. So I contacted Adrian and said, Adrian, we're going to call our company K2. I've read your book on K2. You got a beautiful picture taken from the 19,000 foot base camp. I'd like to license it. He said, really? I've never had anybody ask me to do that. So he did. But K2 is kind of like Davis in the rental cart world. We try harder. We're number two. K2 is the second highest mountain. So, you know, that's kind of where it came from. But here's the close of the story. So we're flying home out of Salt Lake and sitting next to a guy on the plane. He says, what are you guys doing? And I said, well, I'm a partner in K2. And he says, 
Oh, yeah, I've heard of you guys. Well, obviously, we just made up the name on our ski hill, but it sounded familiar. And in the early days of the Internet, when you got a domain name, you had to apply for it and wait for five to six weeks. So we supplied our original K2.com name and our alternate K2E as in K2 Enterprises. And another little company who had intellectual property rights on K2 came along and got K2. We were sad about that. But see, these, these types of stories through technology times maybe don't make as much difference every day. But I can tell you, even today, there's stories that are happening right now where it's like, so why did we do it that way? Well, at the time, it was the simple thing to do, and we made a decision. It wasn't like it was a big strategic decision, but smart thinkers are thinking about this stuff all the time. Well, it goes to show what's in a name too. And with branding and, you know, there's how how many companies that are just based off of somebody's given name, their last name, and then they built the brands around that. We talked about this on a few episodes, how Disney, you know, who's just his name and it's now turned into a brand, you know? So yeah. And in fact, I've had that I've started more than one business, Scotty, and it turns out on that light, I actually had clients that collected cards because I morphed the names over time. And my founding partner and I in that business often said we should have just called it Two Guys Computing because it had been, you know, a brand that would have stuck over a long period of time. But, you know, in that particular case, we picked a name that's actually survived a long period of time, but hard to say and yeah and you know people's names people come and go and but there's a lot of companies built with those names it's funny you say that because the first iteration of this show was sons of cpas so it was just two guys talking you know we're talking about tech talking about tech forward type stuff but we're the next generation so it was sons of cpas i wanted to broaden it a little more and i had to rebrand already after like Mm -hmm. a couple of years in maybe a year and a half in and accounting high is still representative of the next generation, but it's also a fun play on words. And I, I have a lot of a, a few, you know, entendres with the whole high word. But yeah, well, that that reverse too. That's kind of an interesting, like, say, question I've not been asked. But you know, again, the K two philosophy is always trying harder. Having a summit you're trying to reach that is difficult enough that almost no one gets there. And it's so that storytelling around yeah. the brand. And it's been challenging for us for decades and it's ever changing. And you know, for your listeners, that is the one thing I would say about technology is it, it will help you, but you do have to stay up with it. And as you stay up with it, it will reward you by paying back more than you invest. But you've got to stay with it to get that leverage. And to know you're always going to be learning too. There's always more to learn once you feel like you know it is the that's your that's when it's over right there once you feel like you know everything that's when you know nothing it's kiss of death man yep and in fact there's a lot of people that have retired that have never left the office they're just sitting in their chairs i i call it rotting away and to me that's one of the worst things i see in professionals because there are some brilliant professionals out there that are squandering their talent and there are some just okay professionals that are leveraging their talent. And, you know, the most beautiful thing is a brilliant professional leveraging their talent. And that's where I think AI is taking us right now, where 
best of the professionals will use AI to deliver even better answers than they could with their normal resources. So AI is a great pivot to the conversation to AI being so creative. That's what I find fascinating because I don't think too many people saw that coming. AI was, you know, we all thought at least it was going to be very technical, very math oriented, very systems. And, you know, that that's where the tech was going to take over the Jarvis type stuff, Um, you know, quantum computing within the AI and it would spit out answers to everything. When it's spitting out answers, a lot of times they're wrong when it comes to math and any type of accountants, accountantese type stuff. So uh, what I have said in the past, it was on, I was on a show with you once where I had said, it's the calculator now that we never had for that other half of our brain, that creative side of our brain. The, we've, we've had calculators, TI-85s, all the types of calculators, you know, spreadsheets is the best tool we can have as accountants that and, and any other computing math type calculator, we've had that already. It'll spit out answers for us, but we never had that for the creative side. So what are your, did you see that coming? Did you see this being a lot more creative than analytical? Yes. Uh, and I, I always say, I think I did on that too, but it's really because of the focus on AI for so long, Scotty. You know, this whole really predictive, this structured side that you're talking about, that you get from spreadsheets and whatnot. That's one thing. And we still have the need for predictive numerical information. But this, these, and by the way, you're absolutely right. A lot of these AI engines hallucinate all the time and they just make errors. But the bottom line is these emergent techniques or emergent results that you're talking about, like being creative, actually fully expected those to come along Now, the other word that is discussed frequently, and we're certainly not there yet, and we certainly won't be there for 10 or 15 more years, I figure, is sentient, where the AIs actually have kind of a human conscience and can think like a human, and pass the Turing test where they can have a conversation for 20 minutes and you can't figure out, is it a person or is it not? But, you know, if you consider, if you had all of the knowledge of the Crawl, which is the basis for a lot of these large language models from 2016 to 19, you'd be a pretty good conversationalist if you could recall all that knowledge that's ever been published, and you can kind of put things together. That creative piece, though, is still hard to program in. See, so many of our technologies are rules-based, and when you get creative like that, it's almost like the rules don't apply. So, you know, if you start thinking about it like, yeah, these rules don't apply. Here's how we're going to do this. That's where new ideas come from. But you are right. Some of these AI tools are giving you new ideas. And the main thing that I think they do for me is they keep people having to do the mundane stuff. So I actually have more room to think. So instead of spending, you know, two hours writing an article or, you know, or, well, actually, I just did it this past Friday, instead of writing, questions and answers for a CPE course for 30 minutes. I had the AI engine did it and it took me um, something like 15 seconds. Right. And, and they were you, right. But you gave it the prompt and you told it what you needed to do. You gave it the data. So you're creating the output. It, all it's doing is computing based on what you gave it and what you told it. It's, you know, it's not just coming up with this on its own. It's not creating those answers without you inputting. 
That's right, Scotty. I basically drove the prompts because I knew what I wanted and I was specific about how I said, this is what I'm after. And actually the questions generated were perfect. I, I read them and concluded there were no edits needed. Boom, done. Yeah, you probably would have come up with something equally as good or even worse in some cases. If you spent two hours on it and you got distracted on a few things, it may not have been as good. As a matter of fact, you know, I get bored with that type of stuff because I'm looking at it and saying, oh, this is all, you know. So I have the talent to do it, but I don't have the focus or the desire. But by the way, starting with a non-blank piece of paper is really the big leverage point here. Because yeah. instead of being, you know, so many of us are actually, I will say, put in rails. We're putting little cages that are word processors or spreadsheets. And a lot of times I encourage people just get a piece of paper, you know, get a white pad, yellow pad and just sketch because you get entirely different ideas, which by the way, come from different parts of your brain. If you use a pencil and write on paper, but you know, if you're starting with a blank piece of paper, it's blank piece of paper. And I can tell you that having generated for different frameworks through the years, I usually have to work on those things for a long dog on time. What I'm finding now is the AI gets the fundamental structured and it's like, wait a minute, this is a better way to think about it. And then I add my secret sauce and have the AI do some more work and said, that's pretty good, but here's a better way to think about it. And let the AI generate it again. It's pretty stunning how it can iterate to better conclusions. It's fascinating. And and it it's that thing about the blank piece of paper. Sometimes it's that writer's block or you don't know where to start and it can get you started too. I'm a big fan of using paper and pen. Like I, I was thinking about getting a remarkable, you know, I, I tried to do blank like iPad writing on there and it just wasn't the same. So I have tons of notebooks everywhere I go. I'm always writing. I love technology, but using it to leverage the outputs and give it the right prompt or give it something. I mean, I've I said this on the thing we were on together. I've been using it for my raps. Like <laughs> I have an idea of how I'm going to write a rap, what I want to do, and I'll give it the copy that I need to use to pull all it together. And it does it. It gets me started. It gets me like sixty percent of the way there, and then all I have to do is tweak some things, make it a little bit more personal, touch it up a little bit. It's there, but that's all creative stuff. That's because there is no rules. There is no right answer for any of it. That's right. And, you know, even as you learned, both the Remarkable and iPad are almost too constraining. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough through the years to uh, meet a lot of creative types. I think, as you may have heard, my daughter works uh, Broadway, as does her husband. But, you know, just having been involved in that case with Into the Heights and Hamilton and uh, Love Freestyle Supreme, you already know who the rap guy is behind all that stuff. He's my hero. Lynn Manuel is, is my hero. The What he can do, that, it's, it's incredible. And I got to tell you, I've hung with him enough to, you know, just listen to him go back and forth and his friends around him. Because when they were doing Love Freestyle Supreme, that was a pure you know, I'll call it professional rap crowd. But, you know, even like Whose Line Is Anyway, Wayne Brady and whatnot, they're all in that crowd together. And you get those guys going back and forth and you're just kind of watching and saying, that is so cool. And then you try to contribute. And, you know, when people pull you up on their game, you know, that's to me the best part of, of professional life. When you associate yourself with people who are far stronger than you and you're challenged and it makes you step up your game, 
Now that to me is great fun. That's elevating. We all play better when we play together. And that's what we've been learning because of what technology has enabled. I always say this on the show and everywhere else, my accounting world changed when I started to become more connected with people all across the country. I found other people like me and I was isolated. I mean, maybe not isolated, isolated, but I was in my own bubble. And I think it's the mindsets that we have as professionals. A lot of times, oh, we don't want people to see our secrets or we don't want to, you know, our competitors to know how we're doing this. That was a mindset that eventually tech has shattered in a lot of ways for a lot of people. We know we're better together. And when we're blending our ideas together and ideas, as Ron Baker says, ideas are having sex, the outcomes are incredible. You know, people working together, we can be exponentially better too. Yeah. And this whole idea of connecting outside your locality, notice I not only take it across the U.S., but I take it around the world. And, sure. you know, as your connections grow, you will find that there are lots of right ways to do things and lots of interesting insights. Like, I never thought about doing it that way. And culturally, we're often constrained by our region of the country, by the people we run with and whatnot. And when you open up with all those other people, uh, it's, a, it's a big, it's a good experience. And by the way, I, I was lucky enough that I wound up in the Bay Area and Boston and, you know, all these places. So in effect, no tech hub here in Kansas, but my tech hub was enabled by technology globally, just like we're able to speak to each other right now with technology. Sure, sure. And you were one of the pioneers of that, and you never let that be a constraint for you. And it may have been a creative constraint in some ways, because you found creative ways to get out of that and find other ways. But you also used that time and space that you have being in a smaller town or smaller area of the country to create on your own too, and to create your own systems and, and work outside of the bustle, the everyday bustle, and the maybe, maybe create your own, you know, unique ways around some stuff because you weren't heavily influenced. So it could work in both, you know, to degree working with people could hinder you in some ways too, but it could also make you better. Yeah. So Scotty, your insight there is actually quite, quite spot on because of the limitations. We had to figure out ways around the limitations, but one of the things that has been true for me personally throughout the years is having enough quiet time to think. And, you know, originally for me, I got that quiet time on the aircraft. So if you got on an airplane and you're going to another location, you, in my case, you'd have six to nine hours to think. Now with today's technology, with the movie playback and all that stuff, you have to really disconnect to get that same time up in the air. But likewise, I've encouraged people to take downtime on the weekends. Too many accounting professionals are workaholics. They work way too many hours and they don't let their mind rewind. And, you know, one of my favorite books of the year was about sleep. And, you know, the idea is that we all need, need that time to recover. So the Matthew Ball book is the right one in that. And just a minute, I'll get the title. I can't believe it. 
that I can't just spit it out for you. <laughs> no, we don't have GP. We don't have AI to tell us. Like it's hard to recall some things on on my own. I've been trying to think of this. The other sleep book. I've been trying to think of the other one too that I've talked about a lot on the show. But that changed my life. Getting more sleep and creating that space. Yeah. So the answer to that is why we sleep. That's it. Which is unlocking the power of sleep and dreams by Matthew Walker. Matthew Walker. And, that's the same one I'm I'm thinking of too. Incredible. Yeah. That's a fascinating book. Um, yeah, we would absolutely recommend. There's four or five books that are completely unrelated to the practice of accounting that I've recommended. And part of the reason, Scotty, I started recommending four, you know, four or five books every year that I've read that I said, you know, here's a real keeper. All right. You know, and another good example completely on a left turn for you is like the meta book, first book, you know, or when you start thinking about what could happen with metaverse and you think about the capabilities that compute can get for us and particularly if we can leverage it with better graphics and so forth that's a big deal so now that's the matthew bow book the sleep one is the matthew walker book right okay two matthews yep yep and there's a lot of these foundational books that if you can get it, they may not on the surface have anything to do with accounting or the profession or anything else, but they have a lot to do with you as a person, as a thinker, as an accountant, as an entrepreneur, that if you don't have these foundational things dialed in and understand them and understand how your sleep and how your movement and how what you're eating works, plays into your whole life, then you know, you're operating with a disadvantage. It's like working without AI. When AI is enabling everything for us, it's the people that are still working with just a pencil and pen without the AI or without the tech to help enable that. That's a stubbornness, but it's also just an uneducated, like I, I was never really educated in school to learn. Maybe people were telling me how important sleep was, but I shrugged it off. And it wasn't yep. until I started working on that stuff that I realized. Um, yeah, and most people do suffer from that. So... Yeah, but you know, you're just as right on food, for example. Uh, and I've actually studied a fair bit of that just because you've got to feed your body correctly. But you know, we will over the next year learn more about quantum, you know, with people like Michio Kaku, who will actually be teaching many of our accounting related friends on that. But as odd as it sounds, I still do a lot of science-related books, because the writings of Neil deGrasse Tyson is an example. Uh, you know, I like most of his stuff, and it just takes you outside the realm, and then you realize, oh, that's applicable right back here in the accounting professional world. I do a lot of like physics and psychology-related things. It's just, I tend to be very uh, broad. Sure, my, but that's how you get the best ideas to apply to our world. I think our listeners know that, that, you know, I, I'm a, I, I draw analogies to anything and everything because they all can draw back to, well, that applies to this. And you can apply that, which you learned way outside of accounting. I'm learning stuff from entertainment that I can apply to how we do marketing and how we do different things. And, you know, just taking from outside and pulling in is the most innovative way to change things or to improve your current situation. Yeah, and Scotty, your use of analogies, great big deal. You know, the way I've talked about it through the years, you've got to give people hooks to hang their knowledge on. And if you don't have hooks, you can put all the best knowledge in the world and just slides off. Just think like a hook on the wall. So if you're going to hang up a hat or a coat, 
and there's no hook. Where's that thing going to land her? On the floor. And it will be ignored. But if you can use an analogy and say, oh, it, here's how it works. It's like this. And all of a sudden, things start to go together. Yeah, it's connecting dots and, and pulling all that together. Let's talk a little bit about software, too. I mean, in this in the accounting space, like I always say, accounting tech and software changed my life. It changed, you know, it was the interconnectedness and the way we were all connected, but it was also cloud apps. It was when I found Zero. Now it wasn't, Zero wasn't the first app to be in the cloud, but it was the first one that felt like it was made for the cloud and it mm -hmm. felt like it was built. And that's what they said. It was built from the cloud up. And that, we went all in on that. We cha that changed how we interacted with clients and how we were working with everything. It was when QuickBooks just couldn't quite get it there. It was early on, early stages. It just was, you know, they still had a lot of legacy desktop code up in the cloud. My parents also, they have a tech company and they were putting their software into the cloud around that time too. So what has tech enabled, in your words, because you saw this, you saw the long view of this, what has tech done or enabled like the cloud, the cloud software? What kind of impact has that had on the profession? Well, an, a notable bit just to start it all off. Now, first, this whole idea of being able to run in a browser, I know we came up with that idea in roughly 1993 or four. And again, I was working with lots of different groups, but that was before even Microsoft got the, you know, religion that things could run in a browser and the whole item that happened in that point, time frame. And you are right. Zero, because I was Zero's first point of contact for the U.S. market. Rod Drury reached out to me and said, look, I'm doing this. I understand, you know, accounting software in the U.S. market. Here's what we want to do. And I said, yeah, that won't quite work that way. You need to do these things. So it turns out you are right. It was built, you know, for the Clark cloud, if you will. And if you take the efforts of Craig Walker from Zero, who was the CTO there for quite some time, the whole idea of enabling everything to be done from a browser and then subsequently from your phone, those were really, really big steps. The pervasiveness of communications, having internet access everywhere was another big deal. But you were absolutely right. At that point in time, Intuit was still struggling because QBO, QuickBooks Online, was built with legacy tools that it still felt pretty clunky. And, and this evolution, it was real clear to me that it should have gone quicker. And I will just disclose to you, Scotty, and the listeners here, uh, one of the mistakes I made in my career is I said that almost everything would be running in SAS by 2015. Well, that didn't happen, but it should have. And it didn't happen because so many vendors had so much profit tied to legacy systems they couldn't let go of the cow they were milking they still haven't they still haven't exactly there right are some major vendors in our space that have kept that moat so to speak i hear a lot of people call it the moat that they have around as those desktop legacy platforms yep yep and i call it i actually call it a programming brick wall you know they not only are not going to let you in through an API or some other reasonable approach, 
but they're going to do everything they can to keep you out. So the Moat and the Castle approach really works, but it's really the walled garden type of approach. And, you know, as much as I've tried to get vendors to make everything run SaaS-enabled, it's just doggone hard to get a firm completely up on SaaS because you've got legacy products, often like taxed, that are the best of the products or the products that you need to solve the real problems just aren't available yet. You know, the closest we've got today might be ProConnect, but it's a long cry from, you know, its bigger brother with CERT or ProSystem tax and, and so forth and for access tax. Well, it's only a matter of time until it becomes a relic and a, you know, a, a, a place for people to come visit and talk about as in the past, like the Berlin Wall and like the walls that have come down. You know, we're going to have tourists coming in and talking about how it, this used to be. And it's only a matter of time. I don't know if it's 2025, 20, 10 years after you thought it would be, but there's, it's going to happen and these walls are going to fall down because it's inevitable. It's going to happen. In fact, it's interesting you cite the Berlin Wall because I got a chunk of it less than a block from my home here at the oh, Kansas Atmosphere. Wow. But I was actually in California working with a client at the time that was occurring. And the CEO said, you know, it'd be really interesting to go to the wall and take a hammer to it. And he did, and he brought me back a chunk. Oh, wow. And yeah, so yeah, those types of things, which I don't try not to live in the past. I always look for the future. But it is interesting to historically know what's happened and why it's happening. And I do not know the source of this quote, but the best way to predict the future is to understand the past. And, you know, the way it's actually said is those who understand the past will be able to predict the future. And it's part of the reason I've been a bit of a history buff through the years, because when I watch what's happened in technology, when I watch what's happened geopolitically. And so you can tell what's going to happen in the future because behaviors tend to remain pretty consistent. Yeah, human behavior. It, history repeats itself over and over again. And we're and most people just don't pay attention or think that it's different now. Their egos get in the way or something gets in the way and they think this is going to be different than it was the 12 other times this didn't work in the past. And in, and in ancient history, too, it just overall, overwhelmingly always repeats itself, always comes back around to, oh, we should have seen this coming because this is what happened then. This is what happened then. Yeah, it's I'm amazed how people are so aloof on that. And it's like, no, just keep your wits about you. Keep your eyes open and you will be able to discover a lot of things. So I, I guess circling back to your key question and point, you know, the whole aha moment for you using zero and the supporting infrastructures. I mean, all of a sudden, you're no longer constrained by geography. All of a sudden, you're no longer constrained by lots of traditional constraint issues. And very creative people can do even more creative things because we're not limited by distribution mechanisms and we're not limited by, you know, half-year waterfall fall releases of products. We can release something in relatively short order, but now taking it the opposite direction, I am such an opponent of minimal viable product, MVP, because that means stuff in your work. Now, I don't mind creating a new product, but I want it to be usable 
And the developers and designers cannot modify products quick enough to overcome major design flaws. Because, you know, we'll just go back to your analogy world and use the old ancient methodology or analogy here, you know, or a house built on sand. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen to it? You've got to have a solid foundation. And right now, too many of the products in the accounting marketplace are built on sand. What about a kingdom built on a swamp? Yeah, the well, magic kingdom. <laughs> that's still standing. It's still standing, but do you remember what they did to make that work? They built stilts. They built a framework over top of it. Exactly right. They built the framework. So it turns out all of those stilts or, you know, piers is actually their proper architectural name. Those things are really floating. It's the same way as the bridges in Louisiana. They basically don't have any bedrock to put those things on. So what they do is they build these floating piers to build all those interstates. So Interstate 10 outside of New Orleans is a floating pier system. Well, and it's innovative in a way that they got around that too, but it, it's creating people to think differently. I just had to bring that in there because you said- Oh, I knew you'd love sand. it. Yeah, I, I knew you'd you love it. And by the way, notice- they knew they had to have a foundation. And yeah. right now, a lot of the developers seem to not know that they need a foundation. And it's like, this is an advantage, Scotty, being older and having been a developer a long time. I watch developers make the same mistakes about every decade. Every new generation of developers makes the same classic mistakes. And it's like, we don't really have to make these mistakes, friends. What Could is you know? Is it their ego that they're making these mistakes? What's the... Yeah, I I would say it's probably ego is really where it's at. And you know, I, I respect people of all ages, but but people who are not willing to listen to others and learn from others, they're gonna make the same old doggone mistakes over and over again. And there the other other thing might be on the older management generation, they're not actually providing enough guidance to say, you know. Here's some things that have historically worked. Can you come up with a better way? And our that's, it, that's the key, though. Historically have worked. And that's one of the things that I don't think people give enough credit to as well is in a lot of ways, tech is changing history and it's changing the way we do things in the current model, but using history of other industries to help guide that or other other, you know, analogous situations, like we're at the edge right here in accounting where I fear we're going to become like the yellow cab, like Blockbuster, like our, we have traditionally lagged in a lot of tech advancements in accounting. So looking to other industries and looking to other places to see how their models have been upended, you know, it's, it would be wise for a lot of us accountants to start heeding that, that call and I've been talking about it, but a lot of people just want to put their head in the sand and say, what we're doing is working. We're making money. This is, this works. My biggest fear is that compliance, you know, it, nobody's going to, everybody's going to say we saw it coming after the fact, but it's going to displace a lot of accountants that rely on selling compliance. I, it will. And I will go a little bit further because right now I'm working with a new platform that's going to displace a lot of the labor used. And, you know, right now, many accountants have tried to solve the labor issue by outsourcing. Sure. And I think, I think we're seeing a new 
methodology where outsourcing will be unneeded because of the technology leverage. And it'll be even cheaper to use the technology, but even outsourcing is infinitely cheaper than hiring people directly in the U S like we've first, I can't find people for my firm. And so we've had to outsource just to fill those roles, but we also found that it's more efficient and it's a fifth of the price, a fourth of the price. We're going to see that shaved again and again, because what they're doing is still very basic routine type work that, you know, inevitably somebody's going to come around and break that wall down, bust open that wall of, of accounting for all the historical transactions. Like all of that can be clean, done cleanly, like in real time. In fact, I believe that the initial products to get that done are already well underway. So we're very close. And I would just, uh, you know, all products take longer to get to market than I would think they should. But I think by the time we get into... Maybe that's because of the hubris and the ego. (laughs) It could be. But I'm thinking by 2024, we'll actually see these things in wide-scale production. And if I'm right on that, clearly bar the door on the outsourcing companies because they've been enjoying increasing costs, improved lifestyles for their companies in these various countries around the world, South America, Singapore, Philippines, India, and so forth. And all of a sudden, there's going to be a new competitor in town, an AI-fired engine that's based. Yeah. So I had a team meeting this morning. You know, I still meet with my team at my firm. I I always talk about I don't do anything at my firm anymore. You know, I still sit in on the weekly meetings, you know, maybe 20, 30 minutes of of discussion. And this was what I was. I mean, they, they said our clients want us to just get the work done. They want us to do the tax return. They want us to get the books done. They don't care about how it's done. They don't want to talk to us. And I'm just refuting that. I said, no, that they need that stuff done. And that might be why they came, found us in the first place. But if we're not doing more for them, what's going to happen when this tech comes out and we're blindsided by the fact that they can, they only have to pay maybe 10 bucks for a license fee to get everything done that we're doing. Yeah. And you're already close to being able to do that. Very close. In fact, I think it's part of the reason they did QBO live so much there, Scotty, but your management guidance and question this morning is actually spot on in my line of thinking. And it is, what can we do? And notice I want the real pure advisory work. What can we do, do to be an advisor, not a fake advisor, but a pure advisor role CPA where we ask the right questions. We learn what's in the client's individual and business's best interest where we can do planning with them. And then once we do that, then the additional services that we can provide that are secondary advisory and tertiary advisory or concierge services. Concierge services, I like that. And to be a pure advisor, what what is what's your view of a pure advisor? Give me a definition of that. What that is? Well, and I I'm pretty ugly and and straightforward on this. Okay, first you've got to put the client's interest above yours. So you have to listen very carefully and then help them see what they can't see themselves. If they want to get to a particular outcome, you have to listen to that and suggest how they get there. But if you know it's not the best opportunity for them, suggest something that might even be a better opportunity for them. So you are trying to advise the client 
like they were your parents and your parents were asking for advice? How would you treat your parents or how would you treat your kids? So it's that close up a relationship that you would never cross them. You'd never double cross them if you were by not doing the best possible work that you could. But then you also have to have the skills and discipline to say, I don't have the skills to do that. Now, there's a lot of secondary services. Let's just talk about tax advisement, for example, you know, true advisory with tax services or true profit building opportunities inside businesses. How do you actually make this thing more profitable? How do you get it where you can grow it if that's what you want? Or how do you make it a better lifestyle business if that's what you want? Because again, it's not what, what this, you, the advisor wants, it's what the client wants. And then you bring the appropriate people to the table, either from your firm, or that's the reason I use the concierge word, that you refer from other firms that have great expertise. Yeah. Yeah. And all this advisory stuff, Scotty, as you know, it's all forward-looking, almost none of it's backwards-looking. That's why compliance, you know, is, is what it is. I really think there'll be a day when, yes, the compliance work will probably have to get done just because of regulations. But the fact of the matter is the clients are only having us do that because they get a burr in their foot once a year. And they are, you take the burr out and they could care less who's taking the burr out. They just want the burr out. What they care about is what happens month to month to month. And just doing bookkeeping slash controllership services doesn't anywhere get you closer out to the advisory work. Again, just because you can prepare financials and fancy graphics to support them, most business owners can't actually interpret those. No. So help them understand why they've got a cash flow problem in four months or why they've got excessive inventory or they've got a collections problem or can you see that AR days are slowing down and you need to watch this because, you know, confidence in the economy is a little dicey and people may stiff you on this or they may go out of business, whatever it is. You know, you're basically, well, like the flight controllers, you're trying to get the planes on the ground safely or keep them from colliding in the air. You're navigating them. So, I mean, from bookkeeper to accountant to advisor, they're entirely different. The accountant's translating what's the what the bookkeeper already did and talking about what happened, the advisor is taking that a step further and applying it to the future and looking forward through the window, not the rear view mirror. That's what the advisor's doing. And it's hard for accountants. I can empathize with that because it's hard for me to switch gears. If you've turned your neck around to drive your whole life, then it's a whole new world when you turn forward. Like that's, you're disoriented. You know, you've been used to trying to steer backwards and everything. And how do you go forward with that? You got to get into a new car. You got to do something different. Yeah. And I don't know how good you are at backing up trailers. I'm terrible. You know, but I'm quite good at it. And I can back a trailer up for, you know, three quarters of a mile and put it right in the spot. Right. As opposed to all this new assistive technology, which is nice. But, you know, it's a whole lot different backing a car up or a truck up to put a trailer in the spot. These business clients, they don't have any experience backing. And in many cases, they don't have a lot of experience driving. Right. And you're there to do it. You know, the whole thinking that you're like an autopilot, you're a co-pilot with them. And in effect, you're teaching them to fly, but you let them do the flying and you just keep them from getting in trouble. Oh, I love that. Yeah, you're the co-pilot. And... 
And, you know, that's why I think Microsoft actually used that as their brand name on this new AI, you know, Copilot 365. That's it's, fascinating. It's a, yeah, that makes sense because you're copiloting with, with the tech. That's right. And, and it's, you're in charge. We're just here to assist you. And we're going to keep you from having a, you know, fatal error. That's our job. But uh, Copilot's a very interesting marketing word from Microsoft. Yeah. Well, I would have liked to have also talked about PE and I know me and physical education, as in we were, we did discuss some physical education, at least the sleep part and the eating. We didn't really talk about moving too much, but it could be for another day. Um, I don't know if you want to just leave us with something, some parting wisdom for our students. This has been great. This is, this is amazing. And, and it's only, you know, it's, we're only scratching the surface with a lot of this stuff too. There are lots of places we could go because you are correct that, you know, I, I'm just thinking about a, another book that I like very much from the past oh, eight months of reading or so, What to Hate When by uh, Michael Coupain. And basically the thinking there is quite, quite straightforward. A lot of us might do fad diets trying to get ourselves back in shape. But we know that if you have less food, in fact, it's 30% of the typical U.S. diet. If you eat just 30% of what you're eating, you live a lot longer because your cells actually heal themselves. Mm. But the other thing that most of us don't know is that the cycle in the way our body consumes energy, it needs to empty the tank, if you will. And if you eat a big meal at night, you're actually hurting yourself. So... A lot of people don't eat breakfast, and I'm not trying to sound like I'm a breakfast proponent, but what I am is you need to eat the majority of your calories before noon. And what will happen here with, right now we've got a lot of fat and fasting and all that, but if you look at the timing of what you eat and what you eat, you'd be amazed what it will do for your health. And we are clearly suffering from our health crisis in bodies across the u.s market will just limit to that and we are suffering from a health crisis in our accounting firm professionals across the u.s right now we got a lot of fat and bloat and we need to kind of get ourselves in the shape and a lot of us are so fat and happy because we've made so much money we're not making the changes that we need to survive for the long term I just did a t-shirt run order for an event I'm going to be at and you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be surprised to see how many double XL I had somebody ask for six X like this is, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know where, where that's going or where that's headed. I think Wally was a pretty good indication of where we could be headed. Yeah. Well, and I'm not trying to body shame anybody. I just want you to live longer. Not, yeah. Happy. It's, I, I think it's it will be, like you said. People are happy, and they're making a lot of money. But remember, a lot of that's temporary too. A lot of that, like you know, uh, it's. I think to feel good, it has to be inside out too. And you've got to. Yeah. It's and it's a lot of work. But sustainably, the pursuit of that eternal or that long term happiness comes with some fulfillment, some some hard work. There's it's it's a lot of hard work to get back into shape if you've gotten out of shape too oh if you're out of shape it's a bugger to get back into shape and your clients are counting you to be in mental shape and help them with their business to get that into shape too so 
I think that's probably the real key deal because, you know, here in the U.S., we don't have good separation of skills. The bookkeepers like they do in Canada versus what's turned over to an accountant for advisory work and compliance work. So we just, we don't have the separation of duties that are needed right now. And I think a lot of us are listening to too many false prophets, too many people that are given way bad advice. And, you know, I'll just maybe, because you'd asked me to end with the other piece, but I'll maybe end with this thinking. You do not have to cave to private equity for your firm. You can run a beautifully profitable firm without having to be beholden to somebody else. And that's another one of the diseases that's in the accounting profession right now. I've been pretty adamant about that one, Scotty, because I believe in the quality of small businesses and independent businesses in the U.S. market and in Canada and other places around the world. But we have a whole lot of people pursuing profits at the risk of not doing great client service. Ooh, pursuing profits over service, over relationships, over yep. sustainable future, too. Yep, absolutely. And again, I'm not anti-profit, but I am anti not taking care of your clients, which is what advisory is all about. Yeah, for sure. And that's the way. And it seems so simple as we talk about it. And it seems so very basic. But then when somebody comes down to making a decision, it's those hard decisions because in the short term, some of these decisions are very hard and it's a lot of work, but it's worth it in the end. But the pains of the, I always say this too, the pains of the present have to be greater than the pains or the perceived pains of change. People are afraid of change. They know it's going to be work and it's something that they don't want to deal with now because they're yeah. making enough money and there's not enough pain in the present for them. It's going to be painful when they're displaced or when something comes around and they're going to be forced to change. You know, that, that was painful for a lot of the yellow cab drivers and blockbusters, you know, employees and the blockbusters out there. Like what, where did they all go? Where did all the tech cab drivers go? They're probably in an Uber now. A lot of them. Yeah. Doing but you know, that medallion went from a hundred thousand or 500,000 in New York to pretty much zero. You know, as you were describing that, Scotty, I'm kind of thinking about the Mandalorians, right? Yep. This is the way. This is the way. And it turns out it's not the way, right? <laughs> you think about our traditional firms. We thought this was the way. No, there's a, another way. There's another path. Ooh, I love is, how you I, brought the Mandalorian in. That was, that was dope. This is the way. This is the way. All right. Well, we're going to keep it simple. We're going to let our mind rewind and we're going to find the way. That's what we, we are. Such a pleasure to speak with you on this topic. And like you said, we could keep going because there's way more things that we could be talking about. Well, we'll have to have you back in junior year at Accounting High. All right. All right, homie. Thank you. Happy class, to do it. Class dismissed.
While you're here, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you may be listening to us right now so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And feel free to leave us a five-star review letting us know how the school year is treating you. In addition, share this episode on social media tagging us at Accounting High 